Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So uh, shall we do uh, Bits and Bobs Odds and Ends podcast today? Yeah, there's a paper that I read about practical lessons learned uh, doing machine learning at booking.com that I thought was so great that I just want to talk about that all day today. All, well, not all day, but... For the next 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I only have about 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, cool. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So this is a paper that was submitted to an academic conference, but it's a very practical applied paper about what are some of the things that you learn when you're trying to do machine learning and data science at scale as part of a product. In this case, the product is booking.com, which is like a travel booking website. Are you familiar? Uh, yes, I don't. I probably have used it. I've done a decent amount of traveling and I've lost track of the sites I've used, so I've probably used it. Cool. Yeah. I mean, chances are pretty good that a lot of our listeners have too, because it has lots and lots of users. Um, so this is a pretty classic travel website that you can imagine you're trying to book hotels or flights or cars or whatever. Uh, and so there's lots of different little nooks and crannies. There's what they're trying to do in the end is get you to book a book a trip with them and then go on that trip and have a nice time and come back again. And so in the process of having a data science team that makes all of this work better, there's a whole lot of different data science things that they're doing. The title of the paper is 150 successful machine learning models, colon, lessons learned at booking.com. So I can't say for sure whether they do 150 models, but I'll take them at their word that they do. So that's, that's actually a pretty decent sized body of work that they're doing. And, um, mm -hmm. seems like they've picked up on some stuff there that is useful and not obvious. Awesome. That sounds like something we should, uh, dive into. I know. Right now, of course, uh, we'll say up at the, at the top that as usual, we'll have a link to the actual paper itself on lineardigressions.com. found it very readable. So this is one of the ones that is, uh, is reader friendly. So I think we'll just go through a few of these issues and, I'll talk about them a little bit because not all of them were things that I had thought about before. Nice. Yeah. So the first of the topics that they talk about is thinking about what the models are that they're building and how that informs the product development process. So they call this a, a Swiss, a Swiss knife for product development. I think they mean like a Swiss army knife and the idea that there's, you know, with this one tool, you can do lots of different things. Mm -hmm. That tool in this case being a model. But the thing that they started to get at in this section that I thought was really interesting is taxonomizing a little bit the models that they build. So they've got, they say 150 different models. They don't actually list what all of them are. But uh, the point that they, the larger point that they make is there's two major classes of models that they build. One that's general purpose model and one that, and a second class that's very specific to particular outcomes that they're trying to model. So thinking about the way ML might apply to a site like booking.com, it seems like there's the, um, I don't know, as a business, I guess, the metrics you're trying to optimize, those kinds of models, the ones that say, oh, you know, maybe we can tweak this or that to optimize for this particular model. And then there's also probably some work that can be done around just generally making the the product better, maybe adding a feature that gives you information that maybe comes from a, a ML model or something like that as a traveler. Yeah, and that's what they found. So 
there's lots of different things that they might be modeling. They might be modeling preferences of the traveler. It might mm. be modeling things about the context in which they're traveling. Like, is this a business trip? Is this a family trip? They might be modeling aspects of a destination. Like, you know, is this hotel a good value or close to lots of restaurants and bars and stuff to do or whatever. But like you say, there's also the more business metric specific things. So maybe an example to tease this apart. And this is me speculating here a little bit because they didn't go into this. They didn't, this example doesn't come from the paper or anything, but it's like maybe me as a traveler, I have a certain amount of price sensitivity. Like there's a certain range that I'm willing to pay for, let's say a night in a hotel. Right. Yeah. And that's like that price sensitivity is like a general attribute that I have. But for me personally, that'll dial how much I'm willing to pay will dial up or down based on the specific place that I'm traveling to and the specific time that I'm staying there. Like I know that if I'm in New York city in over Christmas, like I'm going to be paying a whole lot of money. (laughs) It doesn't matter how much I don't want to. Um, and so my, you know, my, my price range will be in a slightly different place. Whereas I don't know, maybe if I'm going home to visit my parents in Ohio over some random weekend in the middle of the summer, I am going to be bargain hunting a little bit more. Right. So you can imagine that, you know, price sensitivity for me is a more general attribute that I have, but then in specific contexts, there might be specific teams who are building very specific models that are tying this much more closely to a particular outcome, like me booking a room at a certain rate. And then that has some bottom line impact for booking.com. Increasing bookings uh, that like the total number of booking or maybe increasing the ratio of views to bookings or I'm just also spitballing, but maybe things like that. Yeah. So they go into a little bit more detail than I want to dig into right here about what are the different types of models that they build. But the thing that I thought was generally interesting here is, you know, if you have 150 models, that is big enough that you're going to need to have some kind of substructure to that corpus of models in order to start thinking about it and to keep those things organized and to think about them in a sensible way. And so they do a nice job of thinking through that taxonomy here and understanding what the different strengths and weaknesses of different classes of models are. Like, is this a general purpose model that lots and lots of people will use, but as kind of inputs to other outcomes? Or is this something that's very specific, narrower scope, uh, narrower focus, but more closely tied to a particular outcome? So I guess that's one dimension that you can kind of sort or classify models by. Do they go into other detail you found interesting around maybe some other dimensions that they use? Well, so one other thing that they talked about with models, now I'm getting into one of the next lessons, is around how do you think about monitoring these models? So very often data scientists will use things like the area under the rock curve or the accuracy of the model, precision, the recall, these kinds of things. And their point is that that's that's great, that's good, that's a starting point. But in their experience, that should really only be relied on to tell you, give you a hint when something is wrong. So if the AUC or the accuracy of the model starts to slip or it's very low, that's a sign of trouble. But just because the AUC, the accuracy is high, doesn't necessarily mean that the model is doing well in terms of giving you the outcomes that you want. And in particular, they had this 
this figure that I thought was very interesting where there's a, a an actual business metric that they sort of care about, which is uh, the conversion rate. How much does the conversion rate change? So the you know, basically the likelihood of me at the end, getting all the way through the pipeline and booking a hotel room, let's say. As I'm going through that pipeline, I'm going to be nudged in all kinds of directions by a bunch of different models implicitly that are serving up different types of options to me or giving me different layouts of the web page or whatever. The expectation is that the better the models are doing at predicting whatever it is they're going to be predicting, that will have some kind of downstream increase on the conversion rate. Like if you do a better job of figuring out my preferences or my context or whatever, then you can serve me up better stuff and I'm more likely to eventually pick something. And what they find is that that relationship is, let's say, tenuous at best, which I think is Mm. really interesting and really, really important. What that's saying basically is that you can fine tune your models and you can squeeze more performance out of them, but it doesn't necessarily give you an outcome that's better than if you were having sort of the coarser, lower performance, simpler model. So I don't, I don't fully understand that. You're, it, it seems like if a model is trying to, so it, is it like a model that's trying to increase conversion rate or a model that's trying to predict conversion rate? Increase. Well, so all of these things you're, who knows what the models are doing? Cause there might be a whole right. bunch of different models, but I think the way that you should think about it is I am traveling along a path as I'm navigating this uh-huh. hotel booking experience. And that path is going to look different for me than it is for you because they have a bunch of models that are running for both of us and they're making slightly different predictions and they're giving us slightly different results. Like let's say I'm super oh, price sensitive, right? And so for me, maybe it'll serve up a whole bunch of hotels that are lower priced. You're a little bit more, you're into spending. I'm a big spender, yeah. Yeah, you're a big <laughs> spender. So for you, it's going to say, um, we have this hypothesis that Ben likes to stay at hotels that have weird, quirky uh, interior design choices. So, mm, so I'm a price insensitive hipster. Yes. So we will serve you things in a different order and you find the stuff that you like more quickly. If the, if the algorithm is right, I find the stuff that I want more quickly and we each have a higher chance of converting than if I were to get all of your convert, your recommendations and vice versa. Right. That's the idea. Those are the models that we're talking about. But what they're saying is that the relationship between you getting, you know, your weird, quirky hipster recommendations correctly delivered to you, like that might not actually have a big impact on whether you end up booking in the long run. Like maybe you're willing to scroll through a little while to find the stuff that you want or whatever. Yeah. It is really interesting. I see. Because sometimes the, um, I mean, maybe this, this shouldn't be generalized in the specific, but I guess in this case you could say maybe that's because sometimes the, the journey is, uh, part of the destination. Like maybe I enjoy shopping for hotel rooms as well. And so maybe um, having to scroll through a bunch of them might not bother me very much. Yeah. So they um, give a few different hypotheses for why this might be happening. I think it would be really hard to know for sure, but yeah. you know, yeah. So some of them are, some of it is that there's the hypothesis that there's just kind of a natural ceiling to how much gain you can get out of these models. And 
after a certain point, certain models, like they're just not going to give you anymore. Uh, some of it is, um, uncanny Valley. You familiar with this idea? I am familiar with it in terms of computer graphics. Yeah. So in computer graphics, what does that mean? Yeah. In computer graphics, it's like you have, um, let's say that you have an animated short that has some humans as characters and they look really real, but there's just something a little bit off about that, them. And, and you as a viewer are not really sure what it is. Of course, the reason is that they've been, um, modeled and animated by animators, uh, painstakingly over however many, you know, years, uh, but they didn't get it a hundred percent right. They got it almost right. And something's just a little bit off or weird and you can't put your finger on what. And it makes you really, it makes you kind of like weird and uncomfortable in this very strange yeah, way. It's almost right. like, um, like you've seen Toy Story, right? Yeah. Like whenever you see Andy or Andy's mom, and actually you don't see Andy or Andy's mom very much in that movie, um, like right on for long shots, there's something weird about it, you know? Yep. So the analog here is that if you have a model that's too good, it starts to creep people out a little bit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So because imagine, I mean, it knows you... me too well or something. Exactly. Exactly. I uh, have had this experience on Spotify. Oh yeah. Where I feel like, wow, Spotify, it's like, it's like I on Spotify am a stereotype of myself. <laughs> and somehow Spotify can like give me Ben Jaffe radio and it's weird. Yeah. So there's a version of this with traveling. Like they give a little example where, uh, there was a model that imputed a, a user put in their first destination and final destination in a multi-step trip. And there was a model that imputed another destination in between and started to give recommendations for that intermediate destination without the user having told the program and the user was like, Oh, what? No. So, wow. You know, you can imagine your, if your models get too good, you can start to get some of that stuff. I um, see. So that's a, that's one where the, the ultimate outcome of booking or not booking is not necessarily the only measure of success. Right. And I think your point about booking or not booking, that's, that was the last point that I wanted to make is that in a lot of ways, that's probably the the single metric that maybe they optimize toward the most, but that's not always a metric that's easy for you to use when you're modeling things or when you're testing things. So for example, it might make a lot more sense or be a lot easier to use, for example, click-through rate to understand if a given feature is is helping, is, is something that users like. And with the hypothesis being that when they click through more often, that means they get one step further in the funnel that means that they're more likely, more likely to convert in the end, maybe. But maybe they're, the click-through rate is super high because they're just frantically clicking around because they can't figure out your user interface. Or maybe there's no relationship between click-through rate and their willingness to go all the way through to the end of the pipeline. Like They're just willing to click around for as long as it takes, and it doesn't matter how many times you make them click or not click. So then you could get an awesome click-through rate, but at the end of the day, actual booking conversions, maybe those don't change at all, but you spend a bunch of time upstream, tuning this model, optimizing for click-through rate. Anyway, these are just some of the examples of how you can have mm. a model that's maybe very beautifully tuned and very highly predictive, but that doesn't actually make the metrics move that you care about. It sounds, uh, it sounds almost like 
those examples that you're giving me are examples, all of them, of a model that maybe has uh, too narrow of a focus in some way. And really, you can say that about almost anything, that you could widen the focus, but it would make it more difficult to, to do that job. But like if you look at the Uncanny Valley example, the thing that the model is not taking into account is how the experience makes the people who are booking feel, right? And maybe that even has some very long-term effect on how how often people will come back to the site or something if they just have a general negative impression. Um, or I, I can't remember, there was another, uh, the, the second example you gave me, there was something with that too. But um, just where if the model understood all of the things that you ideally would be optimizing for then you wouldn't have this problem but that's kind of impossible to to actually optimize for all of the things that really matter yeah there's a lot that i've been reading lately about metrics and how how hard it is to translate machine learning metrics into business metrics how the standard business metrics themselves have all kinds of problems. Oh yeah. I think that's like just another episode, but I think it also sets me up pretty well for the next topic that I want to talk about. This was, I thought one of the better parts of the more interesting parts of the paper, but I wish they had written a little bit more here, which is basically about this exact topic that doing a lot of thinking upfront about the problem that it is that you want to solve or the goal that you want to achieve and incorporating that into the tactic that you're taking, like, are we going to build a model? Are we going to run an experiment? What's the metric of the model or the experiment going to be? Is that something that if we actually optimize for it, we get a better business outcome? Like all of these deep and important questions are things that you should think about upfront. So before solving a problem, design it. So figure out, like really, really think about what it is you want to solve and how all the moving pieces are going to come together in the end. I'm hand-waving a little bit here because, like I said, I think that this is super important, but one of the um, one of the places where I wish there had been a little bit more discussion, but I think it's, it's kind of a recap of what you just said. Cool. So um, what's the next thing they talk about? Cool. So next topic is about once you have a model built and you want to put it into production, Mm-hmm. that different models can make predictions more quickly or slowly based on basically how complex the model is or how much information you need to pull up or feed into the model in order to get something sensible out of it. And what that means is that different models can have different latencies. So the time to actually serve up a prediction can be super, super fast, or it can take you know up to seconds. Uh, and if you have a model that takes seconds, that's going to have a really severe impact on people's willingness to kind of stick around and wait to see what the model is going to serve up for them or, you know, what the recommendations are that they get or what's going to go in this little box here that says what the price is, any of, any of these kinds of things. So in short, uh, time is money. If you pick models that take too long to serve up their predictions, then users will click away from your site because they will get impatient. And that should be an important part of your consideration when you are picking a model that you're going to put into deployment. And when you are monitoring that model, once it's in deployment, making sure that the latency stays within the acceptable range. That makes sense. Um, And actually the example you, you gave of you know, what's the price of the booking? That might be the output of a model. As a consumer, I don't think about that very often. 
I just kind of assume that the price of a property is fixed. Um, and, you know, doing this podcast, I realized that that's very naive. Um, but I, I think it's kind of a reasonable assumption that humans will make that, uh, that assumption. And so if you have a model that takes a second to generate or two seconds to generate the price for a property or for a room or whatever, you probably want the page to load more quickly than that, which means that you have a little dot, dot, dot on the prices and then the prices populate. And that just adds a little bit of, I don't know, there's some sort of a, a cognitive dissonance yeah. there. Yeah, like friction, but also this feeling of like, wait, like, you know, the why name do you have of to think place. about this? Yeah. yeah. Why do you have to think about the price? You know, the name of the place, just show me the price. Yeah. And then you realize that it's like thinking behind the scenes and you're like, hey, what are you thinking about? How much are you going to pay? Be willing yeah. to pay for this. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's a little insidious, but uh, makes sense, I guess, in this uh, capitalistic world. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, okay. Let's keep going. The last couple things I think are actually good ones to refer people to the paper if they really want to read up on this um, because they are a little bit involved. So the first is when you are monitoring a model that is in deployment, what are some of the ways that you can monitor the quality of the predictions that it's giving you? And this is actually a harder problem than it sounds because the true gold standard is what is my model predicting or what is the outcome that I want to see? And then what actually happens? Like, does the person book a hotel room? And this is hard because the path from a model prediction to a booking, a conversion event, a booking can be a long and winding road. And sometimes you don't even get all the way to the end of that process. And so then it's like, okay, well, can we even use this data at all? Like we would like to think that we could use this incomplete booking session to learn something here. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so you don't have the, the outcome there to train or test train the next version of your model, test the version of the model that you have right now. So what, what are you supposed to do with that? And so they talk about uh, this concept of response distribution charts, which is basically just a histogram of all of the predictions that your model is making. And there's some visuals here that I think are a little bit helpful that illustrate a few of the different patterns that they see. Um, but the point is without even knowing what the true answer is for the stuff that you're predicting, you can still start to figure out if there are signs in your in your predictions that there's some kinds of issues going on. And so the idea is that this is an unsupervised method. We don't actually know what the right answer is. We're just looking at the predictions. Um, but even based on that, we can start to understand a little bit more about the model than if we were just making shots in the dark and figure out if there are any red flags or any alarms or if it looks like it's mostly doing things that are pretty sensible. That's pretty nifty because usually we don't think of unsupervised learning as telling you something you don't already know. But in this case, I think calling it unsupervised is a little bit unfair. It feels like semi-supervised in this weird way, even though you don't know what the answers are. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it's not, it's unsupervised, but it's, yeah. it feels a little bit smarter than that. So I thought that was pretty nifty. And then the last thing that I wanted to talk about this, I think we will make a, maybe a whole episode on its own one of these days, but it's the idea of adding some sophistication to your experiment framework, like your AB testing framework to take into account the fact that not every user is going to see every model. 
And how are you going to think about making adjustments to your predictions because of that sort of selection bias? So what I mean by that is... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So here's an example of why not every user would see every model. Let's say that I am very price sensitive and you are not. And for me, as a price sensitive user, there is a particular model that is, let's say trying to figure out if I'm price sensitive and I'm flexible on dates and it can figure that out, then it'll give me suggestions about other locations or other times that oh, I could, that, that I could give it. Yeah. That I could visit a place that might be cheaper. And with the idea that, you know, maybe I get turned off by the price at the location and date that I'm looking for, but it makes an alternative suggestion. And maybe I'm more likely to convert on the basis of that alternative suggestion. So that's a really interesting set of pieces to put together. Uh, It's an interesting hypothesis to test, but it probably wouldn't show up for you because you're not price sensitive like I am. Yeah. (laughs) And so the question is, how do we... Hypothetical, Ben, that is. Right. Yeah. No, I keep keep thinking like, don't tell me about myself. (laughs) Um, And uh, so, so Yeah. yeah. So in this case, I might see that new feature or that new model, Uh um, but you wouldn't. And so the question is, how do we take that into account in the analysis that we're doing of the AB testing data? And the TLDR is that it's a little bit complicated and it's subtle and you have to be careful about it. It's using this technique called triggering where it has to make guesses about what the modeled values are for each of us and then randomize, you know, kind of within a range of, of predicted outcomes for the A and the B so that it keeps the, it keeps the randomization for people who are otherwise look really similar to each other. It's a little bit complicated and I'm not sure I 100% understand it. So I will refer, uh, listeners to, uh, to the paper itself. If this is something that sounds like it's really up their alley. And like I said, we'll put a pin in it to come back to some other day. Cause I think it's actually probably, it seems really interesting and, and pretty valuable. So I, we should come back to it. But the TLDR is that when you are evaluating a model or evaluating a new feature, having some sophistication in your experiment design will pay dividends, or at least in their experience, it does. This seems like a really interesting article. And I know that I will not look at booking the same way. Yeah, I thought it was a great article. Like I said, uh, this is the kind of article that I hope to read more of because it's a really nice intersection point of being practical and readable, but also pretty rigorous and scientific and based on, it's kind of like data science on their on their data science in a little bit of a way. Like here are the things that we've learned from going through this process many, many times and sort of seeing a distribution of outcomes and types of data science methods and models that we build. I think that's really cool. So highly recommended. And I think it's a a wonderful genre of paper that I, I hope gets written up more and more often. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. 
Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.